Picture this. It's a hot summer day and the sun is high, beaming down on a clean roadside tourist motel. A housekeeper in a blue and white uniform strolls the outdoor corridors of the newly renovated motel at a leisurely pace. She opens each orange door, changes the sheets, takes out the trash, and leaves a single chocolate mint on each pillow. Outside, kids splash in the pool. Boys and girls between 5 and 15 are practicing their cannonballs, playing a rousing game of Marco Polo, and throwing a half-deflated football back and forth. There's a group of dads all smoking cigarettes and drinking cold beer from a cooler they got at the Conoco down the road. The moms are soaking up the sun in modern bikinis and sundresses, one eye on the kids. It seems like there's nothing to worry about for these families on this perfect July day. Sure, they're gearing up for another long day on the road in the morning, planning their routes and marking maps. But most of these families are on vacation or headed to see loved ones they haven't visited in ages. Some have new cars, gas prices are good, and the weather is unbeatable. What they don't realize is that just on the other side of the fence, a man in an old Pontiac Le Mans has pulled in and found respite under the carport outside the main office. He's looking for a room and he has plenty of cash in his pocket. He's also got a small, imperceptible blood stain on the sleeve of his tan leather jacket. This is the story of the Sioux City Strangler, a man who terrorized the great state of Iowa for nearly 10 years before making his way to California for a little fun in the sun and a fresh crop of citizens to terrorize. I'm your host, Mary Buckley, and you're listening to Sioux City Strangler, the podcast. The year is 1973, and the man who would later be known as the Sioux City Strangler is home from Vietnam. He had been home about four months at this point. While his service record is relatively spotty, it seems that he may have been a medic during the war, though he had no medical training outside of military service. While some of his high school classmates and friends from the area were drafted into service, he actually enlisted willingly. In conversation with those that knew him, he may have been trying to outrun a troubled childhood and early adulthood. In fact, some speculate that he may have committed his first murder before enlisting in the Army, though we'll talk more about that in later episodes. For now, we'll get back to the fateful day the Sioux City Strangler checked into the Bel Air Motel in Sioux City, Iowa. Legend has it, at least according to the man himself, that he checked into room 17 at the very edge of the motel, claiming he needed to get some sleep. He wanted a room a little further from the pool, and that room fit the bill. To the woman working the front desk, he no doubt just looked like a weary road warrior, perhaps a salesman hawking his Bibles or baubles from the back of his high-mileage jalopy. The truth, of course, was more sinister. A quiet room on the edge of the property meant that the Sioux City Strangler could move freely without being spotted by a half a dozen kids and their Good Samaritan parents. Later, in his lengthy confessions, the Sioux City Strangler would go on to say that he had scoped out the motel searching for the perfect combination of hustle, bustle, and privacy. He even watched room 17 from just down the road, waiting until a couple checked out and the room had been cleaned to make his entrance. 
He checked in for nearly a full week, which was much longer than the single night or maybe two nights that most of the families who checked in stayed. In fact, this motel, though renovated with traveling families in mind, was still very much an off-the-highway kind of stop. Many travelers checked in in the evening, often after dinner time, to simply sleep through the night and wake up early to hit the open road again. Maybe they got a hot shower in, too. In fact, the sign outside the motel read, Hot coffee, always fresh, along with color TV in every room. It was that kind of place. Later investigations would reveal that nothing seemed out of the ordinary to anyone working at the Bel Air Motel that month. Nobody stood out. We can only assume that the employee behind the front desk, the one who checked him in, must have believed he was a regular Joe there to visit family in town or on business. Again, it wasn't out of the ordinary for salesmen and other business travelers to stay there because the place was clean, relatively quiet, and most importantly, right off the highway, which made it easy to spot as you approached. It's important to note that Sioux City, Iowa, at this time, although perhaps it still is today, was a relatively small town. Some might even describe it as a sleepy town with little going on outside of a few restaurants, drugstores, barbers, and businesses. The people who lived there at the time certainly would have been far removed from the tumult of the big cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco in the Vietnam era. Did this make Sioux City the ideal stomping ground for a low-key killer who could blend in with the rest of the crowd? It certainly seemed so, based on the Strangler's staggering body count, which he managed to rack up in less than a dozen years. Hey everybody, this is Jeff Hall, founder of Kick-Ass Bread. Bread is a staple, right? You use it for toast in the morning, sandwiches for lunch, and as a late-night snack when that PB&J is calling your name. If you're like me, though, you know that regular grocery store bread just doesn't cut it. That's exactly why I started Kick-Ass Bread in my kitchen. A labor of love, a love of bread. We've expanded into our very own bakery, and we're making our seriously delicious bread available to you. Now, you might be wondering, what makes Kick-Ass Bread different from all the rest? The difference is freshness, and freshness is flavor when it comes to good bread. That's why we deliver every loaf of Kick-Ass Bread directly to your door. Whether you want one loaf of fan-favorite wild wheat delivered to your door each week, or you practically go through a loaf of bread every day like I do, we've got a plan that fits your bread buying style. We've got tons of flavors like wild wheat, rockstar rye, serious sourdough, and more. The future of bread is here with Kick-Ass Bread delivered to your door. Subscribe for deliveries today. Use the code Sioux City Strangler to get a free loaf of our all-American white bread while supplies last. Now, it's important to remember that the Sioux City Strangler wanted Room 17, which was on the edge of the property, as far away from the pool and the check-in area as possible. He had requested this room specifically, saying he needed peace and quiet to sleep because he'd been traveling. The employee on duty in the office obliged, since the room was available and had just been made up with clean sheets and towels. Room 17 also had a parking spot that was technically on the side of the property, mostly shielding it from view. That may be one reason why nobody saw the Sioux City Strangler get in his car every night around 11 p.m., not returning until 5 or 5.30 on most days. See, unlike many serial killers you'll hear about on other true crime podcasts, the Sioux City Strangler had 
and there really isn't any other more delicate way to put this, a workmanlike approach to what he did. When interviewed about this incident much later while serving time in prison on death row, the Sioux City Strangler said that he had spent the first three nights just driving around, traveling as far as 60 or 90 minutes away, looking for places to find victims. He made his way through the bad parts of town, crossed over to the other side of the tracks. In that very first interview, he said, like so many other fledgling killers, that he was looking for a victim not likely to be missed or reported, probably a prostitute or transient. In Sleepy Sioux City, though, he didn't quickly find what he was looking for. His fourth night at the Bel Air Motel, he changed up his plan and took a seat at Eileen's, a bar about 15 minutes away from the motel. He was struggling to find what he was looking for by driving his Pontiac endlessly through the night. The town was too quiet, and everyone was in bed. The bar, though colorful, was inhabited mostly by men. Not only that, but these were also men that made their living with their hands. Some of them were mechanics, others were machine shop workers, and some were house painters, construction workers, and plumbers. These were mostly big men, strong men. They were not good victims. On his fifth night, despondent and sullen, the Sioux City Stranglers stayed in, watching the news and late-night comedy programs. A cigarette in his mouth, around 11.30, he walked outside, sparking up a match. He had decided to simply stay in town, leave when it was time to check out like all of the other travelers. There would be new territories to conquer, other places to find victims. Maybe Chicago, he thought. No longer needing to hide or limit his exposure, he stepped out into the warm night and took a deep drag off of Chesterfield. That's when he saw her, sitting by the pool with a cigarette in her mouth and smoke billowing up towards the stars. Say so long to broken toasters and faulty power supplies that won't power up your favorite gadgets anymore. Say hello to Big Mike and Big Mike's Electronic Supplies, taking the guesswork out of finding the parts you need to get your tech up and running. We've got everything from resistors and capacitors to custom-made power supplies. We can even help you find hard-to-source and obscure parts for vintage electronics from the 1970s and 1980s. Get that vintage synthesizer up and running and hear that beautiful mid-century blender were again with the right parts from Big Mike's Electronic Supplies. Sioux City Strangler listeners can get 15% off up to $100 on orders placed in the next 30 days. Use code STRANGLER to save big at Big Mike's Electronic Supplies today. The Sioux City Strangler approached Betty Smith a 24-year-old who had been living in Cedar Rapids about four or four and a half hours away by car. Betty was fleeing a bad marriage and an abusive husband, headed back home to her parents in Mitchell, South Dakota. Now, Mitchell is only about two and a half hours from Sioux City, so presumably she could have made the drive home that night, though it would have meant a late arrival. According to the Sioux City Strangler, though, who seemed to remember his crimes in vivid, shocking detail, Smith wasn't ready to return home. She didn't know what she was going to tell her parents, a conservative couple who had told her that the man she married was going to be trouble. 
She hoped they would take her in, though she wasn't sure she wouldn't end up going back to her husband, making the whole situation worse. She was sitting there at the Bel Air Motel, smoking a cigarette and staring into the deep end, trying to figure out what to do. She was going to go home, but one night to prepare herself for that difficult conversation with her parents wouldn't hurt. So she pulled off the highway when she saw the lit motel sign from behind the wheel of her car. Betty Smith wouldn't make it home, though. Her body would be found later in the trunk of the car she used to flee an abusive husband. By way of bad luck, she wound up sitting by the pool with the one man in Sioux City that would do her harm. Later, the Sioux City Strangler himself would tell police that he had simply talked to her, presented a kind, caring appearance that was non-threatening. He offered to bring a drink by her room to help her forget her troubles. She accepted, looking for anything to distract her from the restless night in bed that she would have faced alone. Making his way to room five, with a bottle of Crown Royal, the Sioux City Strangler noticed a car parked outside of her room. It was an older model VW Beetle in candy apple red. As he entered her room, he commented on the car's color. This, of course, was his way of confirming that the vehicle was in fact hers. We won't go into the gory details of the actual incident, but according to the Sioux City Strangler, Betty Smith's small stature meant that he didn't need any of the, quote, tools of the trade to, as he put it, take care of business. Waiting until the middle of the night, the Sioux City Strangler wrapped Betty Smith in the flower print bedspread from her room and carried her out to her VW Beetle. He got behind the wheel, adjusted the seat for his six-foot, three-inch frame, and drove northwest to the Hinda Hills State Preserve. He found a spot where her car would be difficult to see, locked the door, and dropped her keys in his pocket. He walked out of the preserve, the night still dark around him. Before long, he made it to the road, and as the sun came up, found a payphone outside a gas station just off Highway 29. He took a taxi to a diner a few blocks from the Bel Air Motel, giving the driver a bogus story about an important business breakfast and a broken-down car. The Sioux City Strangler ordered pancakes, bacon, eggs, toast, orange juice, and black coffee with milk on the side. He always ordered pancakes, bacon, eggs, toast, orange juice, and black coffee with milk on the side, he said. Every time he finished a job that one could only do in the dark while the world was sleeping. He also ordered several sandwiches and a whole cherry pie to go, telling the waitress he had a busy day and wouldn't have time for a proper meal. The truth was that he would remain in his room, blinds drawn, with a do not disturb sign on his door until it was time to check out in about a day. He knew he was in the clear, but the fewer people saw his face, the better. A little more than 24 hours later, the Sioux City Strangler turned in his room key and gave the girl behind the desk a friendly smile. He was ready to take to the open road and head west, just like all the other travelers checking out of the Bel Air Motel that day. His exit from Sioux City wouldn't go according to plan, though. Not when a hiker and his dog out for a brisk walk in the early morning would find the body of Betty Smith in a candy apple red VW Beetle parked in a remote area of a nature preserve. That's next on Episode 2, The Fallout of Sioux City Strangler, the podcast. 
Sioux City Strangler, the podcast, is a past due production and was recorded in sunny Los Angeles, California at Past Due Studios. Episode one was written by Christopher Chase Godwin. Theme music was written and performed by Michael Wegner. Additional music was written and performed by Michael Wegner and Christopher Chase Godwin. Dialogue editing services were provided by Janet Berry. Additional editing by Carl Weiss at Past Due Studios. Mixing by Tommy Singh. Audio mastering provided by Renee Rojas. Want to learn more about the Sioux City Strangler? Maybe grab some great merch to show off your love of true crime? Head on over to SiouxCityStrangler.com or WeArePastDue.com to snag a coffee mug, t-shirt, branded notebook, pencil, and a whole lot more. We'd also like to give a big thanks to our sponsors, Kick-Ass Bread and Big Mike's Electronic Supplies for this episode. Say goodbye to bad bread and faulty capacitors with Kick-Ass Bread and Big Mike's Electronic Supplies. Don't forget to use our promo codes to save on your first order. Thanks for listening and tune in for episode two, coming soon.